0: The first object, which saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast, was the sea and a slave ship, which was then riding at anchor and waiting for its cargo. These filled me with astonishment, which was soon converted to terror when I was carried on board. I was immediately handled and tossed up to see if I were sound by some of the crew, and I was now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits and that they were going to kill me. Their complexions, too, differing so much from ours, their long hair and the language they spoke, which was very different from any I had ever heard, united to confirm me in this belief. Indeed, such were the horrors of my views and fears at the moment, that if ten thousand worlds had been my own, I would have freely parted with them all, to have exchanged my condition with that of the meanest slave in my own country." When I looked round the ship too, and saw a large furnace of copper boiling, and a multitude of black people of every description chained together, every one of their countenances expressing dejection and sorrow, I no longer doubted of my fate. O ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, learned you this from your God, who says unto you, Do unto all men as you would men should do unto you? Is it not enough that we are torn from our country and friends to toil for your luxury and lust of gain? Must every tender feeling be likewise sacrificed to your avarice? Are the dearest friends and relations, now rendered more dear by their separation from their kindred, still to be parted from each other and thus prevented from cheering the gloom of slavery, with the small comfort of being together and mingling their sufferings and sorrows?' Why are parents to lose their children, brothers and sisters, or husbands their wives? Surely this is a new refinement in cruelty, which thus aggravates distress and adds fresh horrors even to the wretchedness of slavery. Those were a couple of excerpts from the autobiography of a slave who later gained his freedom in the 18th century, from Alata Equiano's The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Alata Equiano, which was published in 1789. It's one of the rare things we have of a first-hand written account of the experiences of a slave being enslaved and shipped across the Atlantic and so on. And I'll mention more about Equiano at the end because he was a very interesting historical figure, and I think his story has some relevance to the overall uh, narrative of this episode. Welcome to episode 96 of the Dangerous History Podcast, A History of American Slavery Part 2, Colonial Slavery in British North America. Before I get into the meat of the episode, I do have a couple of Patreon shoutouts to give. Big thanks go out to Bradley and to Brian and Jonathan. Remember, if you sign up to support the show on any amount per episode donation basis via Patreon, I will thank you by name in the next episode of the Dangerous History podcast that I make. And in addition, if you've signed up for at least a $1 per episode donation, you will have special access to bonus episodes there, that are available nowhere else that I put out about every four to six weeks or so. By the way, the next one that I hope to be putting up in the next few weeks is going to be about the Haitian Revolution, very much a topic tied into the history of slavery in America. So please consider supporting the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon. And there are other ways you can support the show as well. Go to profcj.org slash donate. Also, I want to mention before I get into the meat of this episode that the Dangerous History Podcast is proud to be a part of the Dark Myths Podcast Collective, which can be found at darkmyths.org. Happy to be in good company with some very excellent podcasts. Among those there are History on Fire, Daniele Bellelli's History Podcast, Daniele, of course, a previous guest on this show, and a lot of other interesting podcasts, some related to history, some that are fictional, but that are united by a sort of willingness to, to see the darkness, which uh, obviously the, the darker side of history is something that frequently comes up on the Dangerous History Podcast. So I hope you'll go check it out as well, darkmyths.org. Now on to the heart of episode 96 of the Dangerous History Podcast. It seems obvious, but I think it deserves to be stated that the main reason for slavery becoming such a major form of labor in the New World is simply that in the New World, there was a labor shortage from the standpoint of Europeans. This is still a pre-industrial revolution age. You don't have mass production techniques. You don't have mechanized ways of doing agriculture. So it's still human and to a lesser extent animal power that is providing the bulk of the work. Now, back in Europe, there were tons of dirt poor people all over the place. In fact, in many areas, there's more than could be handled by the resources that were available. And so it was very easy to have cheap grunt labor to do work for you if you were a wealthier person. But in the new world, it was tougher to come by. First off, there were natives, but there weren't huge numbers of them. And the uh, diseases brought by Europeans reduced those numbers drastically in the first few centuries of European settlement in the Americas. In addition to that, Indians proved to not be the best slaves in a variety of ways. They tended to be much more successful at escaping than would other other groups. They were sort of on their home turf, so to speak. And, of course, the more contact with whites they had, the more likely they were to catch diseases and die. So Europeans in the New World experimented, actually for quite a long time in many areas, with two sources of non-free labor before shifting en masse to African slaves, one being, of course, enslaved Indians, and the other being indentured European servants, before eventually primarily turning to Africans, especially in the more southerly latitudes, to solve their labor shortages. On the North American mainland, there were Indian slaves in various areas, but they were not very numerous. They were probably most numerous in the very early days of South Carolina. For example, in 1708, the governor of South Carolina estimated that around 10% or a little bit more of the colony's population consisted of enslaved Indians. However, again, Indians were not a good solution to the labor shortage. Among their shortcomings, first off, they weren't used to and didn't do well at organized large-scale agricultural labor. They had this home turf advantage that made it easier and more likely for them to be successful in escaping. And the biggest problem of all, of course, disease. It meant that Indian populations had already been hit hard by the time that whites were getting around to setting up plantations. And it meant that any Indians you used as slaves could very well die on you. And as for white laborers, the indentured servants, they were quite numerous in the colonies for a long time. And the institution in the colonies became much harsher and more exploitative than indentured servitude had been back in Europe. For example, while under indenture, such servants could be physically punished and could be bought and sold just like slaves could. And white indentured servitude was a big deal for a long time, and one of the key books to check out on this subject is White Cargo by Don Jordan and Michael Walsh. The rising oligarchs of some of the colonies were able to benefit in not just one but two ways by importing white indentured laborers from Europe first, and most obviously, of course, by the labor produced by these people, the labor itself. But secondly, the colonial government would often give the importer of indentured servants a land grant for each service he brought in. This is what's known as the headright system. Thanks to this headright system, those who imported indentured servants were given land grants, often 50 acres per servant, sometimes even more. And if you brought in a bunch of indentured servants, this could give you massive amounts of land. So, for example, there was a planter named John Carter in Virginia who imported 80 servants into Virginia in the 17th century and ended up receiving 4,000 acres for doing that. And in the latter part of the 17th century, the headright system in Virginia was increased to 100 acres per indentured servant. So this is just one of the many ways that colonial governments dispersed huge pieces of land in a way that did not even remotely resemble anything like Lockean, Rothbardian, libertarian homesteading. It's simply a matter of cronyism and the state helping out, you know, connected people. Now, on the North American mainland indentured servants were most numerous in the colonies of Virginia and Maryland. And in the Caribbean, they were quite numerous in the early days of the English colonization of several of the Caribbean islands, especially Barbados. But due to horrible conditions, death rates for indentured servants in the colonies in the 17th century were often in the neighborhood of 50% of them dying prior to working off their indenture. And for various reasons over time, in many of these areas, especially those where plantation agriculture and staple crops dominated, there was an increasing trend by the end of the 17th century and into the 18th century of replacing more of these white indentured servants with black slaves. And as slavery grew and evolved as an institution on mainland North America, it developed distinctly in different regions. So, historian ira berlin in his book many thousands gone the first two centuries of slavery in north america identifies four distinct regions of slavery in colonial america the first is the north any place kind of above the mason dixon line the second is the chesapeake primarily virginia and maryland and the places immediately around there this is sometimes called the tobacco coast by other historians The third region where slavery developed in a particular way was the coastal low country, places like South Carolina and Georgia. This is an area sometimes called the rice Coast by other historians. And the fourth is the lower Mississippi Valley. Think about the areas around the modern day state of Louisiana. Slavery evolved and existed and operated differently in these four regions due to different local circumstances, different environment, different demographics, different cultural influences and so on. Despite differences from region to region, overall, when you look at how things went in North America with slavery, it still was different from how slavery developed in places like Brazil or the Caribbean or other parts of Latin America. So looking at North American slavery, meaning slavery in the United States and in the case of years prior to 1776, at the colonies that would later become part of the United States, and comparing slavery there to the institution as it existed historically in other parts of the Western Hemisphere. Historian Peter Colchin says that that American slavery was different in the following ways. Numerically, most slaves in America lived on small to medium-sized farms, not on gigantic estates. Next, there was a relatively much larger white population in America, a majority of whom were actually non-slave owners themselves. By the way, this made it especially important for the slave-owning elite or the planter class, those who own plantations, to use racism as a tool in order to keep the poor whites in the South united with the planter class to keep the blacks in their place. And again and again and again, we run into evidence that white elites, especially in the Southern colonies, were terrified by any instance where poor whites and blacks made common cause against them, which did happen, especially in the early days of a lot of these colonies. Another difference that made American slavery different from elsewhere was that in America, slave owners in most instances had a lot more close contact with their slaves. And along with that, there was much less absentee ownership in America than in Brazil and the Caribbean, where it's very common for owners to have almost no personal contact with their slaves, and in some cases, none at all. And another way that slavery was different in America than elsewhere in the New World is that even though slaves were a majority of the population in certain areas, you know, certain counties or parishes in the South. When you look at the South as a whole, whites were always a majority. The only American colony that had a black majority inside of it during the colonial era was South Carolina. And that majority in South Carolina was nowhere near as overwhelming of a majority as it would have been in, say, Brazil or the Caribbean. Again, by contrast, the sugar-producing areas of Brazil and the Caribbean, you find that blacks there significantly outnumbered whites, often by 10 to 1. Most slaves in those places were held on very large plantations. Most slaves there had much less direct contact with their owners. They encountered fewer whites on a regular basis in general, other than sort of their overseers. And in those societies, there was simply much fewer whites around for slaves to encounter, and fewer of those that they did encounter were non-slave-owning whites. So it causes cultures and institutions and practices and so on to evolve differently in the North American mainland as opposed to especially the sugar-growing areas of the New World. Now I want to talk about the early days of several specific colonies and then a few other regions as well. And the first colony I want to talk a little bit about is Virginia, There are several great books that cover early Virginia very well. Probably the most important in terms of the historiography is American Slavery, American Freedom by Edmund Morgan. This was, in many ways, a groundbreaking book in understanding what really went on in early Virginia as far as sources of labor and race relations and how things eventually went on the path that they did. And also it explaining this contradiction where if you look ahead to the years of the American Revolution, many of the most eloquent exponents of liberty, guys like Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry, for example, were slave owners. And how do you square that circle? How do you explain this contradiction? Well, I think Edmund Morgan makes a pretty good uh, case for his explanation in this book. But anyway, Virginia, the colony began in 1607 when King James of England granted the Virginia Company a charter to start this overseas colony, and the town of Jamestown was founded. Now, the primary motive of those who participated in this venture was overwhelmingly profit. These were not people seeking some sort of religious utopia like the Puritans or anything like that, they wanted to profit. And at least initially, they hoped to profit in the same way that the Spanish had profited in many areas of Latin America, which was to find precious metals. Of course, they didn't really find much of that in Virginia, especially coastal Virginia. Instead, they found a lot of misery. The first few years of the settlement were really brutal. Death rate was about 90% and remained quite high even for several generations thereafter. Relations with the local Indians turned south pretty badly, and... There were small intermittent wars between the colonists and the Indians. There were food shortages, all sorts of problems. It really hung on tooth and nail as a colony for the first generation or two. But they found something that would eventually make at least some Virginians successful. It wasn't gold, but it was brown leafy gold. It was tobacco, which the Colonists first started to cultivate in Virginia in 1617, which quickly became a staple crop, meaning a crop that just dominates the economy of a place, a crop that is sold, that is grown primarily for sale. Somehow, lots and lots of people back in Europe got hooked on tobacco. Who could have seen that coming? And so demand was huge. And for a while later, there are some some downturns in the tobacco market. But for a while, it was a booming, booming market. Now, the main labor source at this time, and for a generation or two afterward, were white indentured servants. African slaves remained relatively uncommon in Virginia until after the 1670s. So you've got these white indentured servants being brought in. And again, those uh, rich guys bringing them in are not only getting their labor, they're also getting land from bringing them in under the headright system. The most common term of service for indentured servants coming into Virginia at this time was seven years. So basically, if you're an indentured servant, you're a poor person who wants a new start. You, you have such a crappy situation back in England. You have such a lack of prospects that you basically are willing to sell yourself into temporary slavery for seven years in harsh, brutal conditions of this colony. That's how bad. That's how desperate you are. That's how bad your situation is and your lack of prospects are back in England. And again, as covered extensively in White Cargo and in several other books, these indentured servants faced horrible conditions and faced situations that were, in practice, not much different from slavery, even though they might be different in theory or legally speaking. But that's who's doing most of the grunt work in early Virginia for quite a while. Historical records indicate that the first black slaves were imported into virginia in 1619 ironically the same year maybe perhaps not ironically the same year that the house of burgesses was created the first mainland british colonial american legislature but in 1619 a dutch ship showed up and this is when the dutch were really starting to get in on the slave trade a dutch ship showed up in jamestown and sold 20 african slaves to virginian colonists and small numbers of black slaves continued to be imported from then on. But it wasn't until really after the 1670s that black slaves became a major component of Virginia's labor force. Up until the 1680s or so, white indentured servants satisfied most of the labor demand of Virginia plantation owners. In these early days, prior to, say, the 1670s, White servants and black slaves often lived and worked side by side, and many, according to the historical evidence, seem to have identified with each other as having common interests and, of course, common enemies, namely the oligarchs who owned them. And the prevention of any sort of solidarity between poor whites and blacks would become a key project of southern oligarchs for the rest of American history. Now, again, there were some legal distinctions in the status of black slaves versus white indentured servants. One of the most obvious, of course, being that white indentured servants were not permanently enslaved, that they were supposed to get their freedom after their term was up. Although in these early days of Virginia, it should be pointed out, a lot of them didn't live long enough because of disease and bad conditions and Indian wars and all sorts of other problems. A lot of indentured servants didn't live the seven years To actually get their freedom and work off their indenture. There were other legal distinctions as well. Um, For example, a law passed in Virginia in 1639 said that, quote, all persons except Negroes should have guns. Now, this is intended primarily To make sure that there's a lot of armed people to repel attacks by Indians, or perhaps secondarily, I don't know if the Spanish showed up in Jamestown or something. But isn't that interesting that as far back as 1639, when there were still relatively few laws on the books, micromanaging the status of slaves and so on, that they're already passing a law that makes it so that indentured servants are supposed to have access to firearms, but not Negroes. Very interesting. But again, in practice, in most ways, the black slave and the white indentured servant often experienced very similar conditions in early Virginia. But over time, this changed, and a lot of it was deliberate on the part of the Virginia elite, and it caused this sense of solidarity between poor whites and blacks to be broken down. Now, this again gets us back to that question of, did racism cause slavery or did slavery cause racism? And I agree with the take of historian Peter Colchin in his book, American Slavery, 1619 to 1877, where he says, quote, What we now know suggests that the most appropriate question is not whether slavery caused prejudice or, preju- or prejudice caused slavery, a false choice since the evidence sustains neither of these two conjectures, but rather how slavery and prejudice interacted to create the particular set of social relationships in the English mainland colonies, end quote. I think that's a pretty good argument, a pretty good summary of what actually seems to have happened. It's not that there was no racism already uh, in existence. We talked a little bit, bit about this in the last episode. There was a certain amount of racism towards Black Africans prior to the slave trade to the New World really getting going, and it's what caused them to be willing to do this in the first place. There was a sense that these black Africans were somehow different. And in an era where slavery was no longer allowed in many parts of Western Europe, they were still willing to, um, ship black slaves and work them in their colonies on the other side of the world. There was a sense that the African slave was somehow different in, a, in an even more lowly category than even the poorest white, you know, peasant or serf and again the differences weren't enormous but even in a legalistic sense there was a distinction often made between the two but what seems to have happened is that there's this interplay back and forth where there's some pre-existing racism that allows slavery to be embraced as an institution specifically slavery enslavement of blacks and then over time as a need to to um legally and ideologically buttress the institution they develop more and more virulent and multifaceted concepts of racism and they're also doing this over time as a way to keep the poor whites on their side the the elites in these colonies where plantation uh, agriculture takes over to keep the poor whites on their side to use the poor whites as a buffer and as sort of you know an auxiliary force to help control the black slave population and it's also a way for the master class to morally feel like they're OK to come up with these ideologies of later quite scientific sounding you a know, pseudoscientific racism to try to portray themselves as being these benevolent paternalists. Well, anyway, um, not too long after Virginia was up and running, another English colony gets set up in the neighborhood of the Chesapeake. And that, of course, is the colony known as Maryland, which was granted by King Charles the to his friend Lord Baltimore, who was one of the few remaining Catholic noblemen in England. And the idea was to have a colony where English Catholics could go to and sort of do their thing and not be as as harassed as they were in England at this time. In the early days of Maryland, the leadership was Catholic, but after a few generations, far more Protestants had moved into the colony, and they eventually were able to overwhelm the original Catholic gentry, and they even, after a few generations, started to pass severe anti-Catholic laws, ironically in this colony whose initial, you know, reason for being was Catholic uh, toleration, to be a haven for Catholics. But in a lot of ways, Maryland quickly, and for much of its history, simply resembles a smaller version of Virginia next door tobacco relatively quickly became the staple crop in maryland as well and there were steep class divides and maryland was probably the number two place importing indentured servants in this time period after um, virginia on the north american mainland so those two two colonies are very closely related virginia and maryland have a lot of similarities to each other and so often developments in Mar- in um, virginia bleed over into maryland and they have an impact there as well I want to talk about something that is a key moment in the history of Virginia and arguably in the history of early America that happened in Virginia in the latter part of the 17th century. And that is Bacon's Rebellion. There's a problem for the oligarchs of the Virginia colony. There's a labor shortage. And a land surplus. This is, of course, the reverse of the way things were back in England. Back in England, there's a scarce amount of land, almost all of it already owned by somebody, or actually all of it owned by somebody. And there is just tons of poor laborers all over the place. But in Virginia, it's the opposite. There's enormous amounts of land and they can uh, not import enough laborers to provide enough labor, you know, to satisfy the oligarch's desire to squeeze profit out of their land. For various reasons, the supply of indentured servants was starting to dip a little bit at the same time that planters were trying to put ever more acreage under the plow to to grow tobacco because tobacco prices had started to come down as more acreage was put to tobacco production in Virginia and Maryland. And then, of course, the solution of each individual planter was simply to plant more tobacco, which, of course, would have the economics 101 effect of driving down the price of tobacco a little bit more. And so they're trying to get more labor force at the same time that it's becoming harder to get as many white indentured servants. So the Virginia colonial government, which was controlled by the oligarchy of the colony, by the elite, they put in place a rule that reserved Western lands for Indians. Now, I'm sure maybe a few of them felt some sort of sense of fairness of reserving some lands to the Indians out west. But in reality, the primary motivation among most of those responsible for this new law in Virginia seems to have been simply to prevent newcomers to the colony, more of whom now were not coming as indentured servants, but as free people from being able to go out to the western frontier areas of Virginia and establish new uh, plantations and new farms, which would then be competing with the older ones. The idea is to try to create an artificial land scarcity situation in Virginia by simply reserving a lot of Western lands to the Indians. And then hopefully more new arrivals in the colony, even those who were not indentured servants, would be willing to contract themselves out as employees on existing plantations in the eastern area- areas of the colony. Now, there was a young newcomer to the colony named Nathaniel Bacon, who is going to lead a rebellion of newcomers and frontier people and poor people from, especially from the kind of Western areas of Virginia at the time, there's this growing tension. There's a class element, not just rich versus poor. Some of the rebels are going to be fairly wealthy like Nathaniel Bacon himself, but there's this sense of they're not part of the club because they're newcomers. They're going out to the frontier lands out West. They're not part of the old time elite that goes back to 1607, but this Um, young newcomer, Nathaniel Bacon, fairly well-off, wealthy guy, and apparently a charismatic sort of a guy, starts to attract a following of people who are very angry at the colonial government. And they feel that the government of Virginia is really not looking out for the interests of newcomers and of people out in the western parts of the colonies. They start to Um, build a rebellion that gathers steam they're angry at the favorable policies to the indians they're angry that uh, governor berkeley of virginia is leaving the indians alone on their treaty protected lands and that governor berkeley is not retaliating when some indian attacks occurred on western uh, plantations and so bacon and his following they take matters into their own hands they attack the Susquehannock Indian tribe, to get at their lands, and the governor of Virginia denounces their actions. The Susquehannock Indians naturally retaliate for the attack on their lands, and then Bacon and his followers go um, themselves, ironically, off the reservation on a rampage against pretty much any Indians they can find out in western Virginia. Eventually, after rampaging around against the Indians out west, they come east to Jamestown, then the, the capital of the colony of Virginia, and manage to chase the governor out Of course, the governor returns the following year with a bunch of British troops to put down the rebellion, which was already starting to fade by that point. Bacon himself had died of dysentery in in 1676 while the governor was um, away, and this began to deflate the rebellion. They had lost their charismatic leader. And the arrival of British troops causes the rebellion to pretty much fall apart. 23 men end up being hanged for their complicity in this. Even though Bacon himself and some of the other leaders of this rebellion were fairly wealthy people, they had actually attracted quite a following of poor whites, including uh, disgruntled indentured servants, and even some black slaves had joined the cause as well. So even though you would look at it and say, well, you had this little rebellion, they rampaged against the Indians for a while, then they briefly occupied Jamestown, but then, you know, some months later, British troops showed up and the whole thing was done. You have to understand, this really would have terrified the old-timey Virginia oligarchy, such as it was already by this time. This notion of sort of poor whites, blacks, and then some disgruntled, out-of-the-club, fairly wealthy whites um, allying against the oligarchy, terrifying. And so in the aftermath of Bacon's Rebellion... The Virginia colonial government stopped being protective of Indian territories. They allowed whites to get at much more lands out west again, as they previously had been. And um, perhaps more importantly for the long-term legacy of how Virginia is going to evolve, the planter elite now looked increasingly to African slaves rather than poor whites as their main labor source. Coincidentally, this very time that, as I said, the supplies of white indentured servants were declining, the availability of African slaves to colonies like Virginia was increasing, because this was the exact time when the English were elbowing the Dutch out of the way for controlling the transatlantic slave trade. So you can pinpoint from the aftermath of Bacon's Rebellion, there is a significant and continual increase in the importation of black slaves into Virginia and They're increasingly becoming the dominant labor force on most plantations. As late as 1680, blacks made up only about 7% of the population of Virginia. By 1750, they made up about 44%. Again, what had happened was the supply of indentured servants was falling off a bit at the very same time that labor demands in Virginia were increasing, and also at the same time that Bacon's rebellion caused the Virginia elite to basically lose their shit and uh, be terrified of the way things were going and search for a much more suitable solution to their labor problem, one that would be less likely to cause scary rebellions. So, This shift from white servants to black slaves in Virginia significantly reduced the amount of class tension between different groups and classes of whites, again, as documented so well and eloquently by Edmund Morgan in American Slavery, American Freedom. Historian Ira Berlin in Many Thousands Gone says that up until the 1670s, Virginia was a society with slaves while after Bacon's rebellion, it transformed into a slave society. Now, most of the colonies that eventually turned into slave societies, in fact, began as societies with slaves. Ira Berlin argues, and I think it makes a lot of sense, quote, The slaveholders' seizure of power was the critical event in transforming societies with slaves into slave societies, end quote. Simply having a valuable commodity such as sugar or tobacco or cotton is necessary but not sufficient to cause this switch from a society with slaves to a slave society. And again, the difference between the two, as we've mentioned before, revolves around how important is slavery to both the economy and overall social structure of a place. If it's absolutely central to both, you have a slave society. If it's peripheral, then you have a society with slaves. So this transformation happens when the slave owners really grab power and set things up to steer everything in their direction. By taking over key resources, especially land, and by grabbing complete power of the state apparatus and using that deliberately to marginalize other sources of labor, the slaveholding elite were able to accomplish this change in Virginia and In other places that became slave societies as well. Now, the rules and norms regarding slavery and racial categorization and things like that hardened significantly when this change occurred. In the earliest generations of slaves in Virginia, what Ira Berlin would refer to as charter generations... The rules regarding things like race and slavery and categorization and so on were often more porous than we might think. There were more opportunities for some slaves to do things like earn their freedom, to even in some cases become relatively prosperous and respected members of society. However, in the case of Virginia, once it evolved into a true slave society, everything got more rigid. Later generations of slaves often had fewer opportunities and were more isolated in their little plantation world than the charter generations, who were often much more in a way cosmopolitan, almost kind of plugged into a a wider Atlantic world. Now, throughout the 17th century, there had been a fair amount of fraternization between black slaves and white indentured servants and documented instances of them working together to resist their masters on occasion. But increasingly, in the late 17th century and from then on, laws were passed to explicitly try to reduce this or eliminate it. For example, by meting out special punishments for white servants who collaborated with black slaves on escaping, and things like calling for the banishment of a white man who married a woman of color, be she black, mulatto, or Indian. Historian Howard Zinn writes, quote, Only one fear was greater than the fear of black rebellion in the New American Colonies. That was the fear that discontented whites would join black slaves to overthrow the existing order, end quote. And I would argue that much of Southern history from the late 17th century onward has consisted of the white elite playing divide and conquer with blacks and lower class whites and usually doing so very successfully. By the way, a similar trend, a similar transformation from society with slaves to slave society with much more rigid uh, racial categories and so on occurred in the other areas of the South during the colonial period. Generally, they started off as societies with slaves where certainly there were harsh rules and racism and so on, but things were a little bit more flexible. They were, the rules, the categories were a little bit more porous in these kind of frontier conditions. Racial attitudes, while certainly were, they were there, they were not nearly as rigid as they would later become. And there was more opportunity for at least some slaves to earn their freedom, or at least somewhat better themselves, even if they remained slaves. However, as the plantation system got more developed and the planter class fully seized power and resources in the, in the colony, they would deliberately turn things into a much more rigid slave society. Now, the increased importation of slaves and the increased acreage under cultivation caused a massive increase in the tobacco crop. During Virginia's first century of tobacco cultivation, exports of tobacco increased almost 2,000 times over what they had been in 1619. In the 18th century, There were some wealthy large plantation owners in Virginia and Maryland, but they operated differently than how large plantation owners would have operated in, say, the sugar-growing regions of the tropics. It was common practice in the Chesapeake for wealthy plantation owners to have one large home plantation where they lived and then multiple smaller properties as well, which would be worked by groups of perhaps eight to ten slaves who were supervised by overseers. One very wealthy planter in Virginia, for example, known as Robert King Carter, was one of the wealthiest pre-revolutionary war planters in the colony. And when he died in 1732, he owned almost 400 slaves of working age, and they were spread out over 48 different properties oftentimes new arrivals from africa would be sent to these smaller farms while the owners would staff their home plantation with the creole or american-born slaves who were considered to be more docile and trustworthy and so on the idea is out on the smaller farms the new arrivals from africa could be trained and broken by overseers safely away from the master and his family Now, as time went on leading up to the Revolution, Virginia evolved more and more into this slave society that was really dominated, again, economically and politically and socially by this institution. This is a similar path we'll find in other areas of the South in the same time period, just Virginia was a bit ahead because it was founded earlier than the other southern colonies. The next southern colony to be founded after Virginia and Maryland was the Carolina Colony, which was chartered by King Charles II to some of his friends in 1663. Initially, it was not split into North and South Carolina, but from the earliest settlements, the northern part of the colony and the southern part of the colony were sent off in two different directions in terms of their economy and society and who settled there. Most of the early settlers to the northern part of Carolina came from the neighboring Virginia colony, and many of them went into planting tobacco, which turns out grows about as well in eastern North Carolina as it does in, in Virginia and the Chesapeake. But in southern Carolina, you got something very different, something that is different in a lot of ways from every other mainland part of British North America, something which is in some ways more reminiscent of a Caribbean colony. By the way, one of the definitive overviews of the development of colonial South Carolina, and I'm going to be mostly talking about South Carolina for the rest of this little segment here, because North Carolina developed in a lot of ways similar to Virginia, just, you know, lagging a bunch of decades behind in its development. But the definitive work in a lot of ways on colonial South Carolina is by an historian named Peter Wood, and the book is called Black Majority, and that right there alludes to the fact that There was a much higher proportion of early South Carolina who were made up of black slaves than there was in other southern colonies on the mainland. A rather high percentage of the early settlers to Southern Carolina, to the area that eventually became South Carolina, came from the Caribbean island of Barbados, both black and white uh, settlers, both free and slave. Many of them came from Barbados, and they were used to having a slave society already back in Barbados, and they were used to cultivating sugar there. Now, they found that sugar wouldn't really work well in South Carolina, and after some experimentation, though, they hit upon a staple crop they could make a lot of money off of, which was rice. What's different from South Carol- in, the, in the case of South Carolina from the other mainland colonies, even in the southern part of North America, is that from pretty much the get-go, they relied heavily on Africans as their labor source. And at least by 1720, um, there was a clear black majority— In South Carolina, making this colony the only mainland British North American colony to have a black majority. Now, in 1701, the Carolina colony was formally split into two separate colonies, North and South. But really, the the two regions had been largely independent and self-governing for a number of years anyway. That was just when they made it official. Even though There was a a large number of black slaves in South Carolina, and even though a lot of the people in South Carolina came from Barbados, where there was already an established uh, slave society by this time, because of the frontier environment and also because of the threats from outside in the form of both Indians and Spanish Florida, which Georgia hadn't been founded yet, so there was uh, no European colony In between South Carolina and Georgia, there were some Indian territories, but it was kind of like a colonial battleground, that area that later becomes Georgia. Well, because of the frontier environment and the possibility of threats from outside, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the people running South Carolina actually had to rely on slaves to help defend the colony. And so in the early days of South Carolina, slaves actually were armed on multiple occasions in the face of attacks from the Spanish or from Indians. And there was some ability for some of those slaves, if they served well in in war, to earn their freedom. And, and there was, even in this society being built by people coming from Barbados, where there already was a slave society, there was still, just because of the frontier environment, some flexibility for a while in things like race and slavery, some ability for people to earn their freedom, some ability for some people of color to not only become free, but become relatively prosperous. There was common practice for things like uh, mixed-race slaves to be set free. You know, if a slave owner impregnated one of his female slaves that the As they would have called them back then, the mulatto offspring would often be set free and and live a relatively decent life. So there was some degree of racial relations that was almost more reminiscent of a French or Spanish colony with this racial mixing in early South Carolina. But it would not last more than a few generations. Now, because of the Barbados influence and because rice, like sugar, is best grown on large plantations, you know, some crops there's an advantage to economy of scale and some there's not. Tobacco can be grown with roughly the same profit margin on a modest sized farm as on a huge piece of land. But things like sugar and rice, because of the production process for them, are much more economically grown on large units. So, slavery and the plantation system in South Carolina, within a few generations, evolved into something that was more akin to the way things were in the Caribbean than they were in the other mainland North American colonies at the time. Another way that slavery operated in a more Caribbean style in South Carolina early on than it did um, in ways reminiscent of the Chesapeake is that absenteeism amongst owners of plantations and slaves was much more common among plantation owners in South Carolina than it was among those up in the Chesapeake. Many plantation owners in early South Carolina preferred to spend their time either abroad or at the closest in Charleston, which was pretty quickly developing into a decent-sized city by colonial standards. In fact, within just a generation or two, Charleston, South Carolina, was the fourth largest city in North America, only behind Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. And it was the most important southern port for quite a while as well. It was some time until New Orleans caught up and eventually started to overtake it as a port. So as a result, absenteeism amongst slave owners was more common. And the flip side of that was that overseers were more commonly employed in South Carolina than elsewhere in mainland North America. Another difference in the way slavery operated in South Carolina versus the rest of the British North American mainland was that the task system came to predominate. This is the idea that the way you organize your slaves, and it's something that makes some sense when you have fewer white overseers is that every day you give them a set task to accomplish. And it's up to them how much time they take. And if they get it done early, they can go do something else. They can go, you know, grow food for themselves or work on something else, whatever. So it actually gives you a little bit less surveillance. It gives you a little bit more control over your own workday. And it gives you also some incentive to maybe work a little bit faster than you otherwise would as opposed to in other mainland North American colonies where slaves would often be, you know, made to work for a set amount of time. And if they finished one task early, they'd just be put on something else. One result of this task system in South Carolina was that slaves were able to be somewhat more economically autonomous. They had a more flexible work schedule and they had more ability to actually work for themselves to one degree or another. Some owners even argued that this was a superior system because it incentivized the slave to work more quickly and efficiently, but it never really caught on outside of low country South Carolina and later coastal Georgia. Many slave masters in other regions feared that the task system would make their slaves too independent-minded and too self-sufficient economically, and they preferred to just keep their slaves in a more dependent state. So some slave masters in other regions would even do things like limit how much a slave could grow his own food, things like that, to keep them in a more dependent state upon the master. By the 1730s, there was sort of a crossroads taking place in South Carolina, and what happened in the next decade would set South Carolina down the path that it eventually followed towards becoming one of the most rigidly enforced slave societies in all of America. What was happening is that just as rice profits were really starting to take off in a big way, some of the white masters who were really involved in running the South Carolina colony were really worried at the growing independence of many of the slaves. Many of them were becoming kind of economically self-sufficient. They were accumulating some some money, some property. They were becoming less slave-like in a lot of ways. And to make matters worse... Down in Florida, which was the closest European colony at the time, the Spanish began in the 1730s offering freedom to any slaves who escaped from South Carolina and made it all the way down to St. Augustine. In the face of this, the South Carolina colonial government began passing laws that increasingly limited the ability of slaves in the colony to really have any independent livelihood of any significance, which, again, many of them had been doing because of the task system. If you got your your task for the day done early, you might be able to spend half the day working on something for your own benefit. Slaves' freedom in South Carolina became more restricted in other ways as well. Curfews were put in place, and also slave patrols were organized, sometimes including poor whites who didn't own any slaves. These slave patrols, which were designed to enforce curfews and otherwise, you know, police and surveil the slave population, eventually were merged with the colony's militia system. And from then on, policing slaves became one of South Carolina's military's prime jobs right up through the Civil War. Laws and regulations in South Carolina began to poke into areas of life that had never been considered before. So, for example, the Negro Act of 1735 even mandated a dress code requiring basically that slaves wear the cheapest, coarsest, crappiest clothing. Apparently, it was designed to enforce a greater sense of stratification and psychological subordination based on race. Maybe they were annoyed that some slaves were actually buying decent clothes with some of the money they made in their spare time. And in this environment, it's not that surprising that rebellion happened. One of the largest slave rebellions in colonial North America, the Stono Rebellion, which occurred in 1739 in South Carolina. Throughout the year 1739, more and more slaves were escaping and making for St. Augustine and freedom. It's possible that some news of coming war between Britain and Spain may have encouraged this uprising the slaves that were involved in the so-called Stoner Rebellion were most likely from the Kingdom of Congo, and some of them may have had military experience. Many of them who were involved in this rebellion were apparently Catholic, and that, plus the offer of freedom down in Florida, made them pro-Spanish. On September 10, 1739, a group of about 20 slaves who were led by a charismatic leader known as Jemmy, who, by the way, was, like most if not all leaders of slave rebellions, literate. I don't think there's there's a coincidence there. This group of slaves, led by Jemmy, marched down towards the Stono River, chanting liberty and carrying a banner that read liberty. They attacked a store at the Stono River Bridge, killed the storekeepers, and took guns and ammo from it. From there, they marched southward towards Florida, attracting more recruits as they went, some possibly reluctant, some not. Probably many, if not most not reluctant, and their numbers swelled as a group to about 80 or so. And as they marched, they attacked plantations and burned them, and they killed approximately 20 white people that they encountered along the way. However, as luck would have it, the lieutenant governor of the colony of all people, William Bull, who was out riding on horseback with some of his friends, happened to discover this group of slave rebels, and they quickly rode off to spread the alarm the militia quickly mobilized about a hundred and they caught up with this group of slaves at the Edisto River. There a nasty little battle ensued and resulted in the deaths of about 20 whites and about 44 of the slaves. Most of the remainder of the rebellious slaves were either sooner or later captured and many of them were executed. Not surprisingly, the South Carolina colonial government clamped down hard in the aftermath of this rebellion. It terrified them. It might not look like much, but considering the frontier environment, considering the fact that blacks outnumbered whites in South Carolina pretty distinctly by this time, it terrified the slave-owning class and probably terrified white people in general. So they clamped down hard. One of the first things that was passed was the Negro Act of 1740, which put severe restrictions on the ability of blacks to move freely about to congregate in groups to produce their own food and also to learn to write although interestingly this law didn't explicitly forbid them from learning to read at this time anyway the law also put a 10-year moratorium on slave imports into south carolina from africa under the belief that african-born slaves you know were more troublesome with a lot of justification they were considered more likely to rebel and resist and so on and this law also made it very difficult for an owner to free one of his slaves, even if he wanted to. Previously, an owner could just manumit a slave on his own say-so if he, if he wanted to or if he allowed the slave to purchase his freedom or whatever. But after the passage of this act, it's kind of interesting because at the time they believed supposedly that slavery was a form of private property. And if that was true, then an owner should be allowed to free his slave for whatever reason he wants. But now the law is interfering even with that. So it's kind of weird. Even with the the paradigm of the time that a slave is a legitimate form of private property, the state is now interfering with that and putting limits on what you can and can't do as far as freeing your slave. So from this point on, the law in South Carolina required that the legislature actually had to pass a specific act for an owner to free a slave. So not surprisingly, in that environment, manumission dropped off drastically. The colonial government also, from that point on, began stepping up its efforts to recruit black informants in order to rat out any would-be rebels so that any future uprisings could be snuffed out before they really got going. Other harsh laws and restrictions followed uh, from there, including one law in 1751 that forbade slaves who had medical knowledge from sharing that knowledge with any other slaves. And South Carolina really completed its journey from being a place where, in the first generation, at least in some ways, in some situations, concepts of race and slavery were somewhat fluid by English colony standards and transformed that into the most rigidly run slave society in British North America. I don't want to mention just a little bit about Georgia, which came along quite a bit later than Carolina and had a very different origin story, but ultimately ended up following a very similar path in the long run. Georgia was founded by James Oglethorpe in 1733, and one of its main reasons was to serve as a place for England's quote-unquote worthy poor. And the idea is it would provide a place for Poor people with no options in England to go and through hard work and so on to make something of themselves and have their own little farm or whatever. A secondary reason for this colony was strategic, for it to serve as a buffer in between Spanish Florida and British South Carolina, which was becoming more and more prosperous. Ironically, in light of how things later evolved, slavery was, believe it or not, initially illegal in Georgia. The idea behind this was that Georgia would become a land of small family farms, not big slave-run plantations, and the idea was to prevent slavery from competing with the labor of free white people. However, by 1750, the ban on slavery in Georgia was repealed, and reasons for this included the prosperity that South Carolina was really enjoying by that. Time due to slavery and rice um, cultivation, and the fact that Georgia was having a hard time finding sufficient white colonists who wanted to come and endure the very harsh frontier conditions there. By the way, one of the prominent spokesmen in favor of legalizing slavery in Georgia was the celebrity evangelical preacher of the time period, George Whitfield, who was a prominent figure in the religious revival movement then sweeping America known as the Great Awakening. Whitfield, by the way, owned a plantation. In Georgia, despite having very different origins and having no slavery in its founding, very quickly, once Georgia legalized slavery, it followed a path in many ways similar to South Carolina. It just, you know, much smaller at the time and and a few generations behind. But within just 25 years of legalizing slavery, the slave population of Georgia ballooned up to 18,000. And while as far as I know, there was never a black majority in Georgia, it was pretty close pretty close. And by the eve of the American Revolution, the coastal areas of Georgia and South Carolina were even more dependent on slave labor for their economy than were the coastal areas of North Carolina and the Chesapeake. I want to briefly mention slavery in colonial Louisiana. The French began exploring and settling the northern rim of the Gulf of Mexico near the end of the 17th century and continuing into the early 18th century. So they founded towns with names like Baton Rouge and Mobile and Biloxi. Their aims in doing this were really more geostrategic than they were economic. They had this idea of linking this uh, the mouth of the Mississippi River with their already existing settlements in eastern canada the idea was they would build a bunch of settlements and forts and whatever along the mississippi river valley link canada to louisiana and at the same time box in the british on the atlantic coast prevent them from continuously expanding westward and as part of this grand project the city of new orleans was founded by the french in 1718 under french rule louisiana developed as a slave society but at the time anyway, didn't develop any single staple crop, so plantations in early Louisiana grew a variety of things, including tobacco, indigo, and rice. But it wasn't until much later, really after the U.S. acquired the territory with Louisiana Purchase, that Louisiana became prosperous, in large part due to sugar and cotton production. What happened to the territory was, in 1763, at the end of the Seven Years' War, it went to the Spanish. It stayed in their hands for a number of decades, but was reacquired by the French in 1800, and then, of course, Napoleon famously sold it to the United States in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase. But it evolved into a slave society as well, and slavery and race relations and racial attitudes were always a little bit different, just a little bit distinct in, in various details in Louisiana than in the rest of mainland North America because of the French cultural influence. Not to say that it was nice to be a slave there or that, they, that white Louisianians couldn't be quite racist, but there was just a little bit more flexibility in some ways regarding race. And one place you can see this in particular is in the ability of people of mixed race to oftentimes be considered in a separate category rather than just being considered black, as they often were in British America. But it wasn't until much later, not only after the American Revolution, but after the Louisiana Purchase, that this territory in the southern part of the Mississippi Valley and the places that later also became the states of Mississippi and those places... That these areas attracted a large population and became you know major producers of staple crops, we should also say something briefly about slavery in the northern colonies of North America. I should point out at the time of the American Revolution, slavery was a legally recognized institution in every single one of the thirteen colonies that signed the Declaration of Independence and became the original thirteen states in the north, slaves obviously, were not nearly as numerous as in the South. Economically, they did a variety of things, but there wasn't much in the way of large-scale staple crop agriculture in the North. So, as a result, slave labor never became the base of the economy in the North the way it did in the South. Now, slavery was not equally distributed throughout the North. There were some areas that had more slaves than others. In a few areas of the North, slaves were a little bit numerous, not by Southern standards, but compared to the rest of the North. And usually there were historical and or geographical regions why this would be the case. So, for example, some counties in New York had a slave population as high as 20 percent, which is quite high by northern standards. But that was due to the fact that there were some large commercial wheat farms along the Hudson River and also to the fact that when the Dutch founded the colony as New Netherland in the 17th century, It was at a time when they were dominating the slave trade, and they used the port of New Amsterdam as a key port of call in their transatlantic trade routes. And so from pretty early on, New York had the highest percentage of its population of any northern colony that were slaves. The second largest northern slave population in colonial America, believe it or not, was to be found in Rhode Island, in part because of Newport's importance as a port in the Atlantic slave trade, which became a big deal once the British took control of the slave trade largely from the Dutch. However, nowhere in the north did the numbers or proportions or economic importance of slaves approach what they were in the south, and so slavery ended up being definitely not nearly as important to the economy and society of the North. Demand for slaves in the North began declining even before the American Revolution, and this demand continued to decline after it. And as a result, the proportion of the population who were slaves in the North continued to fall off, and it shouldn't surprise us that one by one, the original northern states began to phase out slavery one way or another. Some relatively quickly, some doing it very gradually, but the, the writing was on the wall. And when it came to abolition, the fact that slavery was never anywhere near as central to the society and economy in the North as it was in the South made it way, way easier to abolish it. I want to talk a little bit about the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade as the colonial era worn on as the 17th century turned into the 18th century. Again, the trend that I mentioned last time was the Portuguese initially ran the slave trade for well over a century. Then the Dutch kind of horned in on the action in the early to mid 17th century. And then by the third quarter of the 17th century, the English were taking control of it. They fought some trade and naval wars with the Dutch, and they were coming to really dominate the transatlantic slave trade. And would continue to do so from that point until Parliament banned the transatlantic slave trade in the early 19th century. For the first few decades of English dominance of the slave trade, the supply of slaves to their colonies remained relatively small. It was limited because the Royal West African Company was given a monopoly on this trade, and they kept the supply limited in order to deliberately yank their profit margins up. Sort of classic monopoly behavior. Curtail the supply artificially in order to raise prices and thereby juice your profit margins. However... In the 1690s, this monopoly was ended, and so the British-run slave trade became a competitive enterprise, which meant that the number of slaves being shipped across the Atlantic escalated significantly, and their price in the New World slave markets fell. Now, we normally think of economic competition as being a good thing, right? Because it leads to a better product and lower prices. It's, it's a more effective way to serve consumers. And normally, that's a great thing, when it's the production of quote-unquote goods but it's not so great when it's competition in providing things that at least today we consider bats it means that far more people are being enslaved and shipped across the atlantic to be worked and um at least in the case of the the sugar producing colonies which is where the vast majority of these slaves were being sent it often meant an early death Even in North America, which was really kind of like an afterthought of the overall transatlantic slave trade, there was a dramatic increase. So, for example, between 1700 and 1760, the African population in the British North American colonies increased about tenfold from roughly 25,000 to about 250,000. Now, most of the slaves that went to America came from West Africa, from a large region that Europeans often referred to as Guinea at the time. Although smaller numbers came from places further south, uh, such as Angola and Congo, I believe South Carolina was one of the places that received a fair number of slaves from there. Europeans still hadn't penetrated uh, beyond the coast of Africa very much in these days, but they operated what they called factories on the West African coast, as the Portuguese had done since the 15th century. Now, these factories were not places where manufacturing occurred. It's not the same as the word factory that we know, you know, post-industrial revolution. Picture these factories as being more like a combination of fort and trading post, and also perhaps a warehouse of certain things being imported and exported. Historian Peter Colchin writes of the European traders operating in this trade that they, quote, received, especially in the early years of the slave trade, considerable cooperation from African rulers and merchants. Although ultimately traffic in slaves was based on force and the transatlantic trade led to increasing disruption of African societies, Africans, no strangers themselves to slavery, joined Europeans in buying and selling human property, end quote. African slaves could come to be enslaved through a variety of means, such as debt and criminal activity, but prisoners of war made up the largest single source. Now, being a slave in Africa was certainly no picnic, but imagine the additional terror and trauma and just disorientation if you were an African slave and you were purchased for export to European colonies. As a lot of Equiano's passage indicated, it would be like a uniquely just disorienting traumatic experience. You'd be dragged onto a huge ship by very alien looking and alien sounding men whose language you didn't know the first thing about. No doubt many of these slaves had never even seen a white man before being sold to them. You'd then be transported away from your homeland to the other side of the world in oftentimes horrific conditions on board a ship, and once you made it across the ocean, assuming you were not one of those who died along the way, you'd be forced upon threat of brutal punishment in most instances to work for these strange foreigners ironically given the european stereotypes of how quote-unquote savage these africans were many of the africans who were enslaved and sold to them apparently feared that the europeans who were purchasing them ultimately planned to eat them equiano makes mention of this in his account now the journey across the atlantic notoriously known as the middle passage was brutal for the slaves. Death rates of about 5-20% to were typical, and some particularly nasty circumstances could cause them to escalate above that. Some experts have calculated an overall average death rate of at least 10%, though. On board these ships, slaves would be kept in chains in the ship's cargo holds, crammed together out of the sunlight most of the day, sometimes with barely enough room to move around at all. Sanitation was commonly pretty much non-existent. And as a result, disease was absolutely rife on these ships. Now, there were exceptions. There were the occasional slave ship captains who would take lower numbers of slaves in order to give them a little bit more space and a little bit better conditions, reasoning that, If they did that, more slaves would survive the journey. However, it seems that many, probably most, did not follow that protocol, and they simply crammed in as many slaves as they could in their ship and just accepted the fact that a certain number wouldn't make it in any given journey. Now, in order to account for the uh, the damage and loss of this valuable quote-unquote property, insurance stepped in. Insurance for slave cargos became big business, but could also produce some pretty horrible side effects when you couple this with the fact that you have absolutely sociopathic people operating a lot of this trade so for example in one recorded instance in 1781 there was a slave ship that was running out of water and the captain of the ship ordered about a hundred of his slaves to simply be thrown overboard and the reason he did this is he had insurance that would reimburse him for the value of slaves who drowned but would not reimburse him for slaves who died of starvation or dehydration. So things could get pretty ugly, to say the least. Now, I'll point out that when the British ran the slave trade, which was for some of its prime years there, it wasn't just those in the Caribbean and the South and in uh, Brazil who benefited from buying these slaves and working them. But in fact, many people in areas that had little or nothing in the way of slaves in their society profited tremendously from being involved in the trade itself so for example many families in england and new england got fabulously wealthy from involvement in the slave trade so again it's not just the plantation owners who profited from slavery in the slave trade and in fact slavery was a huge deal to many ports i mentioned newport rhode island for a long time uh, built its prosperity on the slave trade as did the english port of liverpool Overall estimates are usually in the neighborhood of about 10 to 12 million slaves being brought across the Atlantic during the entire existence of the transatlantic slave trade. And of course, since many died on the way, or perhaps died back in Africa in these wars that were often motivated by the desire of people to capture more slaves, the impact of the slave trade on Africa's overall demographics is even larger than that. More than 85% of the slaves Who were exported to the new world to the western hemisphere went to brazil and the caribbean only about six percent of the slaves that were brought to the americas went to places in territories that would later become part of the united states and yet ironically due to abnormal health and fertility amongst slaves leading to greater natural increase the united states though it received only about six percent of the slave trade ended up eventually with the largest slave population in in total numbers in the Western Hemisphere. To put it a different way, even though Americans in in territories that later became part of the United States after the Revolution, even though Americans imported only about about 600,000 African slaves during the years the slave trade was in operation, by 1860, just before the Civil War, America had approximately 4 million slaves. Brazil and the Caribbean imported way more slaves, but they didn't have the natural increase that North America did for a variety of reasons. Basically, compared to North America, these places like Brazil and the Caribbean, these sugar growing areas were, as historian Peter Colchin puts it, quote, graveyards for Africans and their descendants, end quote. Now, there's a reason why the natural reproduction in North America of the slave population was so much greater than in brazil and the caribbean and the variety of reasons contributed to it some combinations of factors things such as for example the fact that the growing and harvesting and processing of sugar is simply a much harsher task than crops like tobacco and rice and things like the fact that there was much more of a male female gender balance among slaves in many parts of north america than in the sugar producing areas In addition, American slaves were often better fed due to a higher degree of food self-sufficiency on American farms and plantations at the time, as compared to sugar plantations in the tropics. And then there's the relative lack of tropical diseases as well. Even in subtropical places like Georgia and South Carolina, there's not as much tropical disease as there is, say, in Brazil. So if you put together all those things and a few other factors as well, American slaves ended up having higher birth rates and lower death rates than slaves in most other areas of the Western Hemisphere, especially in the sugar-producing tropics. And again, there was that greater gender balance that that contributed to this. The sugar-producing areas generally had first pick of slaves being sent over from Africa. This meant that the sugar-producing areas of Brazil and the Caribbean would snap up most of the able-bodied young men. While the mainland colonies often had to just take what they could get, which often resulted in whether they wanted them or not, there being more female slaves as a proportion in North America than elsewhere in in the New World. Now, I want to just give an overview of the evolution of slavery in the decades leading up to the American Revolution, The the evolution of it sort of as an institution and looking at the big picture. On the eve of the American Revolution, slaves were about a third of the population of Maryland and North Carolina, and perhaps about 40% or a little bit more of the population of Virginia. But when you look at things zoomed in even further, you look at specific regions and counties of those colonies, though, you find that this average is um, misleading, because in the so-called backcountry areas, especially the more frontier hill and mountain areas of those colonies, there were very few slaves. While in some of the counties that were closer to the coast and had the more level, productive agricultural land, the areas where the larger, older plantations existed, some of those counties would actually have a slave majority population. So while you, you might say, for example, that slaves were 40 percent of the population of Virginia, that meant they were almost nothing in the western frontier areas and then in some of the eastern places they were actually majority in that locality. Another development we can see is that by the eve of the American Revolution, there were large numbers of both masters and slaves who were American-born. This was, again, very much in contrast to other New World colonies, where much higher percentages of the slave population were African-born, and where absentee owners were much more common. They would live sometimes as far away as back in the European mother country. And this made slavery in mainland North America, distinctive from the rest of the New World in cultural and institutional structure and other ways as well, I'm sure. Even in the cases of the wealthier American masters with larger plantations who did actually employ overseers, again, something not nearly as common as in, say, Brazil or the Caribbean, even in those situations, the actual master, the actual owner of the slaves still would tend to be far more involved in actually running the plantation and being involved in the lies of In the lives of his slaves, than would be the norm in, say, Brazil or the Caribbean. Most slaves by the outbreak of the American Revolution were, in fact, American born or Creole. According to Peter Colchin, only about 20% of American slaves were still African born by the outbreak of the Revolution. And definitely by this time, they were clearly developing a distinctive new African American culture. One can see this, and the evidence is the The historical documents and evidence is not always as detailed as we would like on everything, but still, one can see this in everything from the music and dance practices of the slaves to their family life and their family structure and their religious practices. You can see this interesting synthesis and interplay of culture going on, where they preserved some elements of their African culture, and it varied on locality how much they preserved. But not as much African culture was preserved as might have been the case in the sugar-producing areas of Latin America and the Caribbean. And in addition, in these places like Virginia or South Carolina or North Carolina or Maryland, where there was still a decent, by, by Caribbean standards, white population, you find that the slaves preserve some elements of African culture, but then combine it with some elements of the white culture that they're interacting with, and then innovate from there as time goes on. So it's very interesting. Historian John Thornton says that it was basically aesthetic principles, things such as in music and art and cuisine and body decoration, where you find things that end up being the most enduring elements of African culture in the New World. Interestingly, because there was a relatively large number of whites around, especially in the Chesapeake, both black and white cultures in these places, while clearly distinct from each other, influenced each other back and forth continuously over the generations, and there's been some very interesting historical scholarship done on this, showing this interaction back and forth. Just one example of a book you can read if you're interested that talks about some of this stuff in Virginia is the book The World They Made Together, Black and White Values in 18th Century Virginia by mekel Sobel. And really, much of what we think of as Southern culture, whether from a few hundred years ago or relatively recently, much of what we think of as Southern culture including things like cuisine and music and many other things, are really the result of intermixture and interplay between European and African cultural elements. You know, what we think of as Southern cooking or Southern music oftentimes combines that. And even things as relatively recent as rock and roll, right? Where did rock and roll come from? Well, it came from White and black musicians who were able to take elements of the other races' music as well and mix it together. Think about some of the most successful early rock and roll pioneers, right? Everybody knows Elvis Presley was a white guy who nonetheless appreciated some of the black music and was able to incorporate some elements of it into his own music. But there were reverse versions of this as well. So, for example, some of the early black rock and roll stars would be people like Chuck Berry or people like Fats Domino. And when you look into those guys, they, they obviously had a, a blues sort of a background as black musicians in the South, but they were also people who were fans of country music, of white country music. And so early rock and roll is blending these things together. And so Southern history, you have this interesting thing where you often have this horrible race and class oppression going on. At the same time, when you're looking at aesthetics and culture and music and stuff, and, and even cuisine, the best things are often the things where they're mixing elements together from both. Now, another thing that should be mentioned here at least a little bit, and maybe we'll talk about it more next time when we talk about, in a future episode when we talk about how slavery evolved after the American Revolution, is the conversion of American slaves to Christianity. This conversion in mass of slaves to, in almost all areas other than Louisiana and a couple other pockets, Protestant Christianity in America, was still just getting started When the american revolution occurred it had kicked off in some areas of the south during the great awakening in the mid-18th century which was this evangelical movement this revival with an emphasis on emotion rather than on intricate intellectual theology this movement this very emotional version of christianity appealed to many slaves and began the process in some areas of the south of converting them to christianity But it wasn't until the antebellum years, the years in between the American Revolution and the Civil War, that Christianity, particularly a few flavors of Protestant Christianity, such as Methodist and Baptist, became almost universal among American slaves. So there's all kinds of interesting cultural evolution and interaction going on. But all this talk of cultural development and interaction should never distract us or blind us from the central fact that this was ultimately an institution, and a series of relationships based, at the end of the day, on force and dominance. As historian Peter Colchin writes, quote, Born in violence, slavery survived by the lash. Every stage of master-slave relations depended either directly or indirectly on physical coercion. The routine functioning of southern farms and plantations rested on the authority of the owners and their representatives, supported by the state, to inflict pain On their human property, plenty of pain was inflicted. Now, most routine punishments inflicted against slaves were inflicted either by masters personally or by their overseers, but there also were slave courts, special courts for slave transgressions in the southern colonies that could also inflict additional punishments. Among the punishments you can find being inflicted in certain cases by slave courts would include, in severe cases, things like cutting off of ears, toes, and fingers, branding, castration, and even burning at the stake. While it's true that various types of physical punishment, you know, corporal punishment, were directed at poor whites relatively routinely during this time, it's also true that the frequency and the severity and the gruesomeness of the physical punishments that were inflicted on black slaves far exceeded even what the lowest classes of whites would have experienced at this time. And of course, this physical punishment of slaves continued on into the 19th century, even as physical punishments against poor whites continually decreased. That said, there was, according to several historians, a noticeable decrease in the frequency of some of the more extreme and gruesome forms of physical punishment of slaves over the course of the 18th century. In part, it was because planters by that time were starting to invent this more paternalistic self-image of themselves as benevolent overseers and father figures. This idea that certainly still included physical punishment, but perhaps not always resorted to it as quickly or as extremely as before. Part of the reason for this decline in more extreme forms of physical punishment also was probably the fact that a much greater proportion of slaves as time went on were Creole rather than African born. And American born slaves were simply more domesticated in the dehumanizing sense of the word than new imports from Africa. They had grown up knowing nothing but slave, you know, plantation life. And so as a result, they tended to require harsh punishments less often. They were simply habituated because they knew nothing else to obey. Not to say that they always did, not to say that even American-born slaves didn't occasionally resist in various ways, but that again and again and again, you find the sources mentioning that new imports from Africa are always going to resist the most, and in particular going to resist in the more blatant ways, whereas Creoles will either not resist, or if they do resist, it'll be in more kind of subtle ways. Also, As the 18th century wore on, more and more of the masters were American-born as well, and a fair number of them had actually grown up alongside at least some of the slaves they owned, and so doubtless they did have some sense of genuine affection. Now, I, I don't think it's completely phony that at least some of these slave owners did have a belief that they were in some way kind of paternalistic father figures. This is not at all to say that That slavery is okay, or that these were good people and that they didn't do horrible things. But I think we shouldn't discount the fact that some slave masters probably did try to be a little bit more benevolent because they were trying to adhere to this notion of being paternalistic. And as time went on, an interesting kind of dualistic trend occurred because of this increasing paternalism amongst, especially, the more elite planters. This really started to happen during the antebellum period in the first half of the 19th century. And we'll probably come back to this theme later in the future. But masters would become more concerned with the material welfare of their slaves. But at the same time, they would also become more interested in controlling them in other ways. So, for example, it was during this period when the material status of a lot of slaves was measurably improving, where more laws were passed doing things like making manumission of slaves more difficult, making it a serious crime to teach slaves to read, and those sorts of things. So you have this weird two-edged sword where, as time goes on, there is a little bit better material conditions amongst many slaves, but in some ways their freedom from control and surveillance is actually being curtailed at the very same time. Now next time I'm going to be talking about slavery in the American Revolution and the impact of the revolution on slavery. But before we call this episode to a close, I just want to briefly return to lot Aquiano and his story. I read you an excerpt of his autobiography at the start of this episode. I just want to mention a little bit about who he was. He was born around 1745, and according to his autobiography, he was born in West Africa, and then as a boy was enslaved and shipped across the Atlantic when he was about 10, 11 years old. Although I should mention, there are some modern historians who have argued that there's some evidence he may have been born in South Carolina. I'm not taking a side in that debate. I'm not nearly enough of an expert to have an informed opinion on it. After being shipped across the Atlantic, Equiano spent some time in barbados and in virginia as a slave was owned by several different masters somewhere along the way he learned a lot of skills having to do with seamanship he, he worked on some ships and this is something there was some occupational diversity for slaves in some areas some slaves were employed working on ships or were employed doing skilled trades in urban areas you know not all of them were field hands So Equiano learned some seamanship skills and then had the luck of being eventually sold to a master, what would become his last master, a Quaker, at the time when some Quakers were starting to turn against slavery. They were were the first religious group in the Americas and in England to really oppose the institution. And he lucked out. He had a master who allowed Equiano to purchase his own freedom by earning some money on the side and so on. And so, in the 1760s, Equiano was able to buy his freedom. Somewhere along the way, he actually became highly literate, and in fact, in later years, he mastered French, in addition to speaking English and, I think, several other languages as well. Not long after buying his freedom, he moved to England and eventually married an English woman and had children with her there. He also traveled the world quite a bit for a while, working as a sailor in various capacities. Ironically, In the 1770s, he worked for a while for a plantation owner in Latin America, helping him to select and purchase uh, slaves. So, shows you that people don't, even based on personal experience, people don't flip their beliefs rapidly. Here's a guy who was a slave, who obviously didn't like being a slave, who, when he got the opportunity to get his freedom, took it. And yet, just a few years later, we find him working for a plantation, helping to import and oversee slaves. So, obviously he didn't like slavery for himself, but in the 1770s, he hadn't yet full-fledged turned against the entire institution of slavery in principle yet. But later in the 1780s, he clearly did. Back in England, no longer working for a plantation in Latin America, he became heavily involved with the abolitionist movement in England. And it was during that time that he wrote his autobiography, which eventually became... Which pretty quickly became an influential book in the abolitionist cause because it was such a rare thing from that time period, a first hand account of what it was like to be a slave. So, Equiano's story is very important because we have so few first hand accounts from the slaves themselves during this time period of what things were like. But his story is also emblematic in a way because it shows how, in the early days of colonial America, there was this. Somewhat looser version of slavery and racism. Not to say that it wasn't still an oppressive institution, not to say that there wasn't still all kinds of racism, but it was, in a way, in the early days, a little bit looser, a little bit more flexible than what it would later become. Equiano's story shows you how some slaves in the early days of American slavery did have at least some opportunity to do things like learn additional skills in some lucky cases, even by their own freedom, and to benefit then from the skills that they had acquired and from their connections in the Atlantic world and the vast trading networks of the Atlantic world at the time. But ironically, Equiano was one of the last slaves in the in the Atlantic world to really have this experience and this opportunity, at least, you know, that we know of who's who's well known. Ironically, at the very time that Equiano was leading this very interesting life, These sorts of opportunities, like he had, were fading fast for most slaves in the Americas. He shows what was possible, at least for some, for a while. But unfortunately, his story of eventually getting his freedom and becoming a pretty successful person was not an option for the vast majority of slaves during that time period. So anyway, that's it for this episode. I will see you next time with the American Revolution and Slavery. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org, that's profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether it's social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash p-r-o-f-c-j, and sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that, For any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record, and if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin, and you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website, and if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.